Has anyone said to you recently, I have some good news and I have some bad news? And how does that usually turn out? When people say that, they're generally full of bad news, aren't they? When someone says, I have good news and bad news, it's most likely that both news are bad, but it's couched in a way to give you false hope. One lawyer said to his client, the bad news is that the blood test results confirmed that it was your blood that was at the crime scene. And the client then remarked, oh no, I am ruined. But what's the good news? Well, the good news is that the test results also confirmed that your cholesterol level is down to 130. (laughs) One doctor told his patient, the good news is that your test results confirmed that you have 24 hours to live. Well, that's the good news? What could possibly be the bad news? Well, the bad news is I've been trying to get a hold of you since yesterday. (laughs) And here one teenager says to his dad, and this is nothing but good news, says, Dad, I have good news. The airbags in your car work. (laughs) Now, these are funny news, some of which are true, but mostly made up to illustrate how we present bad news to give false hope at times. Well, this morning, I have some good news and some bad news for you. And it is the truth. And I can't couch it in any other way to give you false hope. And I can only present the reality of it just the way it is. Because there's no other way to present it. The Bible calls this bad news sin. It is a truth that describes the state of our human condition. And when you see the world around you, your observation and your experience in it will confirm this truth. Look around the world today. We live in a world where people experience death. We live in a world where people lie, cheat, steal, and kill. We live in a world full of corruption where justice is being perverted. We live in a world full of hate and anger where people murder for power and control. We see the effects of sin all around us, don't we? And the effects of sin are not limited to those in power, but it's evident in everyone's life. And sin affects you personally. And it affects your eternal destiny. And it affects those whom you love dearly. And your sin and how it is dealt with in this life will be the determining factor of whether or not you enter into the presence of God when you stand before trial before God. But how bad could sin be? We all seem to be doing okay, even with sin present in this world. After all, we live in one of the richest counties in the world. And we see that living in this state of brokenness seems to be okay, especially here in Fairfax. So why do we even want to expose this bad news of sin in the midst of our comfortable, rich life? This Christmas season, I want to remind you of the bad news of sin in order for us to truly appreciate the good news of Christ. So this morning, I have some bad news to share with you. So join me in verse 18 as we looked at Romans chapter 5. And what we see here, as I said, is verses 18 through 21 is a summary of Paul's argument that began in verse 12. And in these four verses, Paul compares sin with Christ's righteousness through Adam and Jesus Christ. 
And in every verse, you'll see a contrast of the bad news with the good news. So let's read the bad news according to Paul. The first section in verse 18 says, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men. I'm going to stop us there. Here is the bad news. The verdict is out. We are declared guilty before the holy judge. And because of Adam's sin, we as humans have all been condemned and we have been called guilty. We can draw the conclusion based on Paul's argument summary here that Adam, as a representative of the human race, sinned. And so God rightly imputed his guilt to us. In other words, we have inherited Adam's verdict of guilt. And his guilt has been made ours. Adam incurred a moral debt against God, and we have inherited his debt of sin. We are guilty before the holy judge, the one who created us, and to whom we are accountable at the end of our life. But that's just part of the bad news. It gets worse. Not only do we inherit Adam's guilty verdict, we also inherit his sin nature. You see, Adam's act of sin has led to our condition of sin. Adam's willful and deliberate disobedience against God has resulted in our condition of sin, where we now willfully disobey God. And what are the effects of sin nature in a person? In our inherited sin nature, the totality of our being is corrupted by sin, including your mind, your heart, the body, and spirit. Your intellect, your emotions, your desires, your goals, your motives, your physical body have all been affected, and you have been corrupted by sin. The apostle knew this very the apostle Paul knew this very well. And so he said in Romans chapter 7:18, says, I know that nothing good lives in me, that it that is in my sinful nature. He also wrote in Titus 1:15, to the corrupt, to the corrupt and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Their minds and consciences are corrupted. Jeremiah in the Old Testament also tells us in Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. And this is why your heart and desires can be deceitful because we have inherited Adam's sin nature and the totality of our being has been corrupted by sin. There was a popular movie uh, out back, back in 2000 it was a movie called Napoleon Dynamite. And in this movie, there is a part where Napoleon, the main character, gives an advice to his friend Pedro. And the advice goes like this. He says, Pedro, listen to your heart. Or just listen to your heart. Now, this is a common advice that we give to one another and that you hear uh, often. But this is a dangerous advice because our hearts are deceitful. And I realize the intentions behind this when people say it. But as Christians who realize the nature of sin, we must keep in mind that our hearts are corrupt. And listening to your heart in your sin nature can lead you away from God. Instead of advising them to follow your heart, advise them to seek wisdom. To seek wisdom from God, the one who gives wisdom and to seek wisdom from the body of believers, 
the church of Jesus Christ. Now, there are some in church history who have rejected this view, the view that we inherit sin nature, and so the totality of our being has been affected by sin. A popular 4th century Christian teacher in Rome by the name of Pelagius, he rejected the doctrine of inherited sin and taught that our will has not been tainted by sin and our will alone can lead us to salvation apart from God's intervening grace. But this is not the biblical view of sin and his teaching was later condemned as heresy. The biblical view of sin is that in our sin nature, the totality of our being has been corrupted by sin. And as a result, apart from Christ, we are unable to do good spiritually before God. If God declares you an unholy sinner, then no matter how hard you try to do good before God, you will fail. If I told you that Adolf Hitler did some good in his life, what would you think? The creation of the Volkswagen, the, the, uh, the rocket engines, jet propulsion, and some major medical advancements in history, they were largely attributed to Hitler's leadership. Though these are good things, these are not what Hitler is known for, aren't they? Why? Because he has been declared in history as an evil dictator of Germany who was responsible for killing millions of Jews and committing many other atrocities, whatever good he may have done has been discounted and will not be credited to him as his good deeds to humanity. And this is true of us. If God declares you an unholy sinner, then there is nothing you can do to please God in your sin nature. Jesus said in John 15, 5, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, you cannot please God in your sin nature. Ephesians 2, verse 3 tells us that without Christ, we are by nature children of wrath. You can try to bear fruit for God, but it's impossible to please God apart from Christ. This bad news that I share with you is the reality of our existence. It is also known as the doctrine of original sin. The doctrine of original sin is not a reference to Adam's act of sin, but to the condition which resulted from it. It is a reality that we have inherited Adam's original guilty verdict and his sin nature. And as a result, the totality of our being has been corrupted by sin, and we cannot please God apart from his divine intervention. As we read in Romans 5.18, the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men. Do you realize that without Christ, that you are dead in your sin? Do you realize that without Christ, that you are an enemy of God? And do you realize that without Christ, that you are a child of God's wrath, destined to be condemned in hell forever, for eternity. You see, apart from Christ, you can do nothing to please God, let alone enter into his holy presence. We are sinners, and in our sin, we want nothing to do with God or his holiness. 
In our disposition, we run from God. In our disposition, we delight in our selfishness. And we delight in sinful acts. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we commit acts of sexual immorality. In our sin nature, we are slaves to sin. What we need is a divine intervention to declare us not guilty. And Christmas is a celebration of this divine intervention. The good news that Jesus came to this world to free us from our slavery to sin, to change our verdict from guilty to justified, to transform us from sinner to sanctified saint. And you may have wondered, well, that this is not fair that I was born in sin. It's not even the sin that I committed. It is a sin that Adam committed and I inherited it. And after all, it was him, not me. And you may have non-Christian friends or coworkers or people that you work with that may agree that it's not fair for them to be guilty for something Adam did. So how do we respond to this charge? That it's not fair that we inherit this sin nature that we may not deserve. Some have argued that if it was any one of us in Adam's shoes, that we would have done the same. After all, Adam had a leg up because he wasn't conceived from two sinful parents, but he was created by God, and his father was a sinless divine figure. But even this response is only hypothetical, because what we're doing is we're only trying to answer the question of what if. The most convincing response is though it may not be fair that we inherit Adam's sin, we should also think that it is unfair for us to inherit Christ's righteousness imputed to us by God. Because the procedure that God used both for inheriting Adam's sin and Christ's righteousness is the same. Look at verse 18 and 19 with me. Consequently, just as a result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. You see, the process God used is the same. It was through one man that sin entered, but it is also through one man that righteousness is given to us. And this is the good news, that though in Adam we inherit his sin nature, in Christ we inherit his righteousness. That in Adam we inherit his sin nature, but in Christ we inherit his righteousness. And though this is a good news, we have to ask, who can inherit Christ's righteousness? Is Christ's righteousness imputed to all people universally, regardless of their religion, their past history, or their background? Well, at first, second half of verse 18 seems to argue for a case of universalism that Christ's act resulted in justification for all people, regardless of their faith. 
And some scholars have interpreted this verse to mean that God will save all people, including people like Hitler and Hugh Hefner, who have never trusted Christ, regardless of their faith. Because that's what the text seems to say. But is that what the Apostle Paul was trying to argue? Well, notice here in verses 18 through 21 that each verse contrasts two categories, Adam's sin and Christ's righteousness. Paul's emphasis in verse 18 is a contrast of the two categories, not on the word all. Can we have the slide up, please? If you look at this slide, what you see here is verse 18 in the original Greek. And what you'll notice in the layout of the sentence is the way Paul wrote it to contrast the two categories. And visually, you can see, visually, I'm going to use the the left screen here, the right to your right. Visually, what you can see, the two clauses are identical. They are mirror images. And the only difference are the two categories that he emphasizes, the trespass and righteousness, condemnation and justification. And all the other words are mirror imaged. And even visually, we're able to see that the emphasis is on the contrast and not on the word all to argue for universalism. To interpret this verse as universalism would be to miss the point of the argument and to take the second clause out of context of Paul's overall argument. Throughout this letter and in his other letters, Paul has repeatedly argued that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone and not universally. We can bring this slide. Thank you. Romans 1.16, Paul wrote that I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 10.9 also says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Romans 3.22, even the righteousness of God has been manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. And Jesus said very clearly, John 14.6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Bible is clear that salvation comes from faith in Christ alone. And in the context of Paul's argument, the all who receive the justification of life in the second half of verse 18 is an emphasis to contrast the condemnation from Adam's sin. And the all describes all those who belong and will belong to Christ through faith those who will experience the benefits of Christ's righteousness. To interpret this verse as a way to argue for universalism would be like saying, taking Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, and saying that I can do just about anything. It'd be like saying that I could play for the NBA as a professional basketball player. Now, I don't have much of a future in the NBA, I don't think, I'm a 5'7 Korean man who can barely dribble the basketball down the court without fumbling it at full speed. And that's not what Paul is talking about, is it? In Philippians 4.13, Paul is talking about being content in all circumstances and not being able to do anything he wants. Likewise, in verses, uh, Romans 5.18, the argument is presented to highlight the contrast between Adam's sin and Christ's righteousness. The inheritance of Adam's sin nature is universal. 
but the inheritance of Christ's righteousness comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. The bad news is that we as humans are all in Adam, and we have inherited his guilt, his sin nature, and as a result, the totality of our being has been corrupted, and we cannot please God in our sin nature. And without his divine intervention, we will receive what is our due, eternal punishment and separation from God for eternity. But the good news, the good news of Christmas is so good. Our loving God has indeed intervened, and he has sent his only son to be born of the Virgin Mary, to live a sinless life, and to die for his people, so that in faith, you may receive his sinless credit of righteousness and be reconciled to God as you join Christ in his death and resurrection. The work of your salvation has already been completed by God, and he freely gives you this gift of grace. The Father has sent the Son. The Son obeyed and was made righteous. And the Holy Spirit imputes and makes Christ's righteousness ours when we trust and walk with God in faith. You, without exception, were born into Adam's sin. But this morning, the question I want to ask you is, do you belong to Christ? Have you accepted his free gift of grace? If you have never committed your life to Christ and have heard the gospel message over and over, week after week, what will it take for you to commit to him? Will it be a better sermon, a better worship team, a bigger church, a better service? We are sinners before the holy God, and sin has no place in God's holy presence. Like the darkness that dissipates when you turn on a light, so will the darkness of sin be eradicated in the light of God's glorious presence. Jesus is your only hope for salvation. If you are not in Christ this morning, I urge you, I urge you today to repent of your sins, turn from your sins, and you turn to Christ this morning and you trust him. You get to know him by reading the Bible daily, by praying and asking for forgiveness. Only Christ can take away your sins and grant you his righteousness so that when you stand in judgment before God, your new verdict will be justified in Christ. You will be declared righteous because of Christ's righteousness will have been made yours. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. As you sing the praises of God this Christmas season, I pray that you will rejoice in the good news of our Savior this Christmas, that in Adam we inherited his sin, but in Christ we inherit his righteousness. Let's pray. Father, you have freely given us your Son, Jesus, 
You have freely paid our debt. Holy Spirit, you call us to freely come. O triune God, you have graced us with the work of your salvation. Lord, this Christmas season, may we rejoice in this great news that while we were yet sinners, you came to bear our sins and you died for ungodly sinners like us. We thank you for this good news, the gospel message that you came to save us and whosoever confesses you as Lord and believes in you will be saved. Lord Jesus, your name is above all names, your glory most high, your compassion unfailing, and your incarnation most humble. We thank you for your love for us, and we celebrate this Christmas as we praise your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand to sing our last song.